0: Please be seated. We uh, turn again in the Gospel of John, chapter twenty, picking up as we uh, left off a couple of weeks ago with the resurrection of Jesus, and now in his appearance to his disciples in the upper room, and as his missionary force to the world, these rather unimpressive fishermen, uh, as Jesus himself was nothing that would cause men to marvel but was nevertheless sent into the world for our salvation, so so his disciples are likewise sent. Here now from John chapter 20, I'll just read verses 19 through 23. John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear, of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Amen. Let us pray together once more. Our Father in heaven, how glad we are, too, that we have a risen Lord. And we pray that even as we likewise are sent into the world, to be in it, but not to be of it. We pray that you would sanctify us by this, your truth, for your word is truth. And pray that we now would have a deeper understanding of this calling on our lives and how we might best fulfill it to your glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Jesus was a missionary. We don't usually think of it that way, of course. We apply the term missionary uh, To others who have perhaps been sent with the good news to a distant people, but we realize upon reflection that Jesus was so sent. He came and preached the gospel, He made disciples, He built the church, He taught others how to follow after Him. Once upon a time, missions meant sending people overseas to benighted tribes of people who didn't know the Lord. These days, you don't have to go so far to meet those tribes. Uh, the church has adjusted its use of the term accordingly, and we talk about foreign missions as well as home missions. We also talk about unreached peoples and reached people groups. Unreached people might be those who live their whole lives without ever hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And I definitely don't want to understate the supreme importance uh, of pioneer missions to unreached peoples. Paul himself was a pioneer missionary. His ambition was to preach the gospel where Christ had not already been named. He wanted to go to lands beyond, he said. But Paul understood that not all missionaries had the same pioneer calling. Speaking about him versus Apollos and others, as he wrote to the Corinthians, you know, in God's harvest, he said, some plant and some water although God makes it grow. Uh, And uh, these days, we are thinking more and more beyond just the unreached people. We are uh, using some new terms. At least some people are advocating for new terms. Here's three new words that people are using today, beyond just reached and unreached. Some people are talking about misreached people. Misreached That is to say, the gospel has arrived and taken root in an impure form. Vast regions of the global south fall into this category today. There are perhaps in those places many Christians and many churches, although too often with an anemic or even a false gospel. They may be labeled on the missionary maps as reached, painted green, By some well meaning researcher. But they too often have a different gospel, which Paul says is no gospel at all. And so such people are in fact misreached. Second, there are the once reached peoples. Once reached, the place where there once was a very faithful gospel presence, but where at some point in history the lampstand was all but removed. These are now some of the most resistant people on the face of the earth, the Middle East and North Africa, for instance. They were once the heartland of the Christian church. Julia Klucco said that in her country in North Africa, they still have the cross in their architecture and the symbols in their culture, but they have no idea what it means. It's just a leftover from previous centuries bygone. Or we might think of Europe for a time considered the ends of the earth and then it became Christendom. Even the home of the modern missions movement, or the origin of it anyway, but today, vast swaths of Europe are among the most atheistic secular places on the planet. The knowledge of the gospel has gone, and they are once-reached peoples. And third, we can talk these days about the under-reached, underreached. That is to say, there are places where they have the true gospel, but for whatever reason, they lack the health to grow or sometimes even to fend off false teaching. In many cases, they are underreached because their leaders were never fully trained to shepherd the flock or to handle God's word rightly, often a financial shortage in such places. In these underreached areas, there's a constant threat from false teaching or things like the prosperity gospel. In Paul's words, such people are often like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men. Sin is often rampant because the church was never taught how to address it. Misreached, overreached, excuse me, (laughs) once reached and underreached. All this reminds us of the complexity of the church's mission. Christians are a people that are sent. And it's not just to be here and there as though it were a linear process, but everywhere and all the time. And we are reminded that boxes that were once checked can become unchecked. Reached peoples may, in a space of just a generation or two, become once-reached peoples. Swaths of our own country are misreached or underreached or even, in some places, once reached. In, in one sense, of course, uh, every heart with Christ is a missionary and every heart without Christ is a mission field. But we recognize that every congregation must have this mission church mindset. And one of the most famous histories that uh, has ever been produced by by Philip Schaff. I highly recommend to you his multi-volume history of the Christian church. He, he notes the remarkable fact that after the days of the apostles, no names of great missionaries are mentioned until the opening of the Middle Ages. There were no missionary societies. There were no missionary institutions, no organized efforts in the anti-Nicene age. And yet, In less than 300 years from the death of St. John, he writes, the whole population of the Roman Empire, which then represented the civilized world, was nominally Christianized. To understand this astonishing fact, we must remember that the foundation was laid long and, and strong and deep by the apostles themselves. Christianity, once established, was its own best missionary. It grew naturally from within. It attracted people by its very presence. It was a light shining in the darkness and illumining the darkness. And while there were no professional missionaries devoting their whole life to this specific work, every congregation was a missionary society. And every Christian believer a missionary, inflamed by the love of Christ to convert his fellow men end quote. I do think that's how it ought to be. The church is a missions organization, and we are a people that are sent. And the question for us as we come to this passage is, how can we be better missionaries? I mean, we all know people who very desperately need the gospel. We know families or places in our own orbits that are underreached, misreached, we, we come to this passage with a question. How can we be useful for so noble a cause, for so great a Lord, for so important a task as this? And I don't know of a more helpful passage in the Bible than the short passage I've read to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, you say, well, that's just the Great Commission, right? Well, okay, the Great Commission, so-called, is given five times in the New Testament, once at the end of each of the four Gospels and then at the opening of the book of Acts. Matthew, for his part, emphasizes the kingly authority of the Lord. And so we have this brief phrase, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. Mark emphasizes the looming judgment of this world. Luke emphasizes the fulfillment of prophecy. All things must be fulfilled which were written and so forth. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Acts gives more of a practical pattern and program for beginning world evangelization. Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. But here in John... John is special in that it joins together five things which we'll be considering together today. Peace, proof, purpose, power, and proclamation. That's why I say it's so helpful. I realize it's very brief, but let's open it up. If he's given us such a commission, we say, well, Lord, how are we going to fulfill it? Well, first... He gives us great peace. Verse 19, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now, of course, shalom is, uh, was then and is now a common Jewish greeting, but it's repeated here for emphasis and uh, so that we might take note. It's not just the greeting. He, re- he shows them his hands and his side. But then he repeats, for emphasis, verse 21, peace to you, these men who were hiding in the upper room behind locked doors in fear that they might be the next ones on the cross. And keep in mind that this is the first time that they had seen the Lord since they had abandoned him and fled on the night of his arrest. You might expect Jesus to show up saying, you unbelieving, fearful, slow of heart excuses for disciples, but that is not it at all. Jesus speaks peace to their troubled hearts. He doesn't reprove them. Peace, he says, peace. Peace with God is foundational. It's foundational. Peace with God is foundational for our mission for God. And not only does Christ bring us peace with God, he gives us the peace of God, his abiding presence wherever we go. Lo, I am with you always. And we need To have this peace, you know how anxious your heart is when thinking about this, as is mine. We need his peace to go to a hostile world. The peace of God, peace with God. Do you have this peace? There's only one way to get peace with God. You know, in 1945 in Tokyo Bay, the war having been won, General Douglas MacArthur received the surrender of the Japanese military. The military wasn't invited upon the ship there to negotiate. They were invited to receive gracious terms of peace on America's terms. Similarly, we don't come to God seeking our own terms of peace or negotiating with him. We come to receive his. I know that some people try to get peace on their terms. God, you do this for me and then I'll do this for you. But there is to be no bargaining. If you want peace, you must receive it the way the Lord himself has provided it abundantly. The cross. Jesus himself is our peace with God. It is there that sins are nailed to the cross. And you must first have peace with God, if you would have the peace of God. And if you would do anything for him, we must begin with this peace. Peace He said, I leave you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so with the Lord with them again, saying once again that they are to have his peace, they are to consider, well, no matter my lack of gifts, no matter my humble circumstances, no matter my anxieties, if I have been sent into the Lord, into the world, with the Lord's present peace, I can go. And he gives us great peace. Secondly, he gives us great proof. Verse 20, when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And by the way, Luke adds that Christ invited them to touch him. And then, because they could still scarcely believed it, he asked for a piece of broiled fish. And, and they, they watched him eat it. He he wanted them to know just how very real and present he was with them. And we'll take this up more next time as we consider Thomas and the matter of doubt. But let me point out today that Jesus is making a point before he sends them out that they should have absolute conviction, great proof, proof that he gave not only to those ten that night in the upper room, But then to a great many people, he goes on and appears to hundreds of skeptical eyewitnesses in a variety of ways, in daytime and at nighttime, at mealtime and outside and inside and in the mountains and on the plains and on the beach and in the upper room and in public and in private. He eats with people, meets with people. He has them feel the scars in his hands and in his side. And so we read that Jesus, by many infallible proofs, demonstrated that he had truly risen from the dead. Now, a wide variety of writers have given to us such testimony in the Bible, though I'll point out that history records a great, great many more witnesses who went to their death because of such a conviction. This is not some legend that developed over the centuries. Josephus, writing in that first century, said those disciples refused to abandon their discipleship because, they say, he rose from the dead." End quote. Paul went from being the chief persecutor of the church to its chief ambassador to the world. And why? He says many times he met the risen Lord, and he was not alone at that time. Claudius was emperor between 41 and 54, less than 20 years after the resurrection. There is such a major turmoil and disturbance in Rome that he throws all the Jews out of the city, AD 49. His ancient biographer, Suetonius, records that because the Jews of Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, which everybody believes is simply Christ, and he expelled them from the city. By the 50s, the 50s, Suetonius records, punishment was inflicted on Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. Such Such news went like wildfire in the ancient world. And even when oppressed, they sealed their testimony with their blood. They could not deny what they had seen and heard. There's much, much more that we could say, more that we will say. But Jesus would not have them just go off and say, I think, I feel. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Oh, no. He gives us great proof. He gives us, thirdly, great purpose. Great purpose. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Uh, Very great words that connect what the Father has done with the Son to what the Son is doing with us. Connecting our purpose with Christ's purpose. And these words, then, are much more than a command for evangelism and mission. They're establishing a certain pattern. Just as the Father has sent him, so we are sent by him, following Christ. He was sent into the the world. He did not remain aloof. Anybody ever see the old uh, movie, The Gospel Blimp? Right? Very... uh, uh, interesting difference between uh, how some people were trying to get the word out to the most people possible and having signs behind the blimp and so forth and, uh, versus a guy who's just meeting with his neighbor uh, make, makes, a, makes a point that there's a certain pattern to our mission that Jesus himself did not remain aloof he humbled himself became the servant of all and in great humility, came, he said, to do the Father's will, to speak the Father's words, to accomplish the Father's works, to seek and to save that which is lost, he told Pilate. For this cause I've been born, and for this I've come into the world, to testify to the truth. And so he did. And then he sent his disciples out with these same commands. Verse 15 of chapter 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now, to be clear, we are not all called to be pioneer missionaries. I'm not at any way minimizing the critical role of pioneer missionaries. But I'm saying We are all called to follow Jesus, to be like him, to be in the world but to be not of the world, to further his kingdom by word and deed, to be instruments of his work, and to take up our cross and follow him. As Paul wrote to the church, follow me as I follow Christ. And so we go. Now, I've heard it said that a banker is somebody who lends money to those who can prove that they don't need it and one who refuses to lend money to those who do need it. I used to work for a bank. There's something to that. But Jesus went to the poor in spirit. He went to the morally bankrupt. He went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And his pattern is to be our pattern as well. John Stott comments, this is the great weakness of evangelical Christians in the field of evangelism today we tend to proclaim our message from a distance. We sometimes appear like people who shout advice to drowning men from the safety of the seashore. We don't dive in to rescue them. We're afraid of getting wet. But Jesus Christ did not broadcast salvation from the sky. He visited us in great humility. End quote. So many of us are very shy, naturally, introverted, timid. And yet we do long to see others coming to faith and to share our joy in God. And who are we and who would listen to us? But then we look at these very, very ordinary disciples given a mission of great purpose that just as Jesus was sent by his Father... So he has sent us. We think about their weakness. We think about those disciples' times of confusion, their cowardice, their selfishness, their lack of education. And Jesus confidently tells them, no, you're, you're, you're my men. I'm going to do it all through you. And specifically he says to them, I don't pray, O Father, that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. It is a great mission, not just to go and evangelize, but to be sent by Jesus just as the Father had sent the Son. A mission of great purpose. Now he says to accomplish it, we need more. So point four, he gives us great power. Great power. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Spirit. say, how does that relate to uh, Pentecost later? I mean, Thomas isn't even there in the upper room that night. Well, the the action anticipates the soon outpouring of the Spirit to happen on the day of Pentecost, as is usually understood. Jesus tells his disciples explicitly later, do not go until... That Spirit that I will send to you comes upon you. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As we read back in chapter 15, He will testify of me, and you also will bear witness. And and this is the the dual nature of our calling. Word and Spirit. Word and Spirit. The the Word which we give from stammering tongues in fear and trembling. That's what Paul said he did. In fear and trembling. The Spirit testifying also with fire and power. That's the mystery. He will testify of me, and you also will bear witness. Now, without the Holy Spirit, as Warren said earlier, we can't serve the Lord in any capacity. The Holy Spirit gave speech to Israel's prophets and wisdom to its kings and valor to its warriors. Zechariah tells us not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. But this is especially true in this matter of Christ's mission to the world, carrying the message of a crucified Messiah. Who will believe this? And we can't change the heart. Oh, no, you don't understand. The Spirit of God can do all this and much, much more with us and through us. The Bible doesn't command us by the way, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit because baptized with the Holy Spirit is a one-time event taking place at the moment of our salvation, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. But it does often command us to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. And since the Spirit of God, must, as I say, open blind eyes, since he must give new life to people. We must rely on the Spirit as we talk to them about the Lord. Jesus is speaking again to very ordinary, remar- unremarkable, uninfluential men, but in a few days, one of them will stand up at nine in the morning on a street in Jerusalem and give a message about Jesus that sounds a bit accusatory, frankly, He gives a message that might very well have been laughed at or simply ignored. But in fact, thousands believed. And not only believed, but they changed the fundamental commitments of their lives, root and branch, at that hour of the morning. It was the day of Pentecost, and that was just the beginning. For day after day, the disciples were telling people what happened, that Jesus was alive from the dead, and what this meant for them and to the world And they believed it. And in a thousand conversations in homes, in the markets, in the temples, in the halls of government, these new Christians told others who believed. And they should not have believed. People who had no intention of believing in Jesus. People who crucified Jesus. People who had at this point been hostile to this message. Wealthy, comfortable, sophisticated people in great cities of the world were convinced by unlettered peasants that this message of a crucified Messiah was their only hope. Who could explain it? Point four explains it. Christ has given us great power. He will testify of me, and you will testify also. But fifth, he gives us a great proclamation. He gives us a great proclamation. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, They are retained. This good news that we are sent to proclaim does not center on Jesus helping people with some mere personal problems, but about the cross of Christ. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and Jesus didn't die to save us from our personal shortcomings, but from sin and the wages of sin that's death. As G. Campbell Morgan wrote, the ultimate reason for the mission of the church in the world is to deal with sin, Now, someone will read this verse and ask, well, you know, growing up, I heard that Jesus was establishing penance. He's sending them into the world on a program of penance, not proclamation. Well, on the one hand, clearly from this verse and others, the church has authority to judge, yes. The church has authority to declare, to uh, bring in and to put out. But unlike the rest of the church, the Church of Rome in the Middle Ages took it from there and ran with it. And the Church of Rome developed a whole theology and program of penance, which is very, very far beyond what we read here and has little to do with proclamation as they read the verse. So the Eastern churches to this day, the Orthodox churches, the Oriental Orthodox, the Assyrian churches and so forth, they have no such program of penance they declare God's forgiveness on God's terms, which is what we do today. And who can, who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark 2. And so it's good for us to not only read this one verse and then build a very, very tall theology upon it, but then to see rather how this verse is fulfilled. As Peter proclaims to the thousands visiting Jerusalem to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Paul explaining to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, they constantly preached the gospel and declared with God's authority the terms upon which God forgives or retains sins. Clearly, there's a time when that judgment must be made by the rulers of a church. But the ordinary way in fulfilling this passage is by declaring with God's authority the terms of God's forgiveness, a great proclamation. In conclusion then, this is how Christ equips us for mission. He gives us great peace, Great proof. Great purpose. Great power. And a great proclamation. You See how rich this is? It could be a series of sermons. Just as the Father sent him into the world, so now he sends his disciples. In it, but not of it. Sanctified by the truth, for his word is truth. And now for most of us, The word of Christ is, of course, now return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. That we are now sent into this world to glorify God in all that we do and say. And that's a very large calling. Not just in the matter of proclamation alone. Can you do good to people? Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Can you live a holy life? Then you also are involved in the mission. The scripture says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. Can you serve others? We read, if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory and power forever and ever. Can you pursue love and unity in the church? Jesus prays that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you loved me. You see how broad the calling is. Paul praises the Philippians for their fellowship in the gospel. He was involved in pioneer missions. They were staying at home, but they were living exemplary Christian lives and they were praying for Paul and they were sending him assistance and they sent a man named Epaphroditus to help him when he needed help and the word of God was sounding forth from them in many ways. So one writer says it's not the individual witness that has the greatest effect on the society. It's the total effect of the life of the whole community which makes a fundamental life-changing impression upon the world. Each Christian has a gift or gifts which God has given him to the end that he may participate in the church's mission. All right. So there it is. All that we do to have the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Here, there, everywhere. Not just checking boxes or looking for the red spots not the green spots on a map. All that we do, all that we say, our life together, holding forth the word of life and everything else that advances such a mission. Now, I read about a missionary doctor this week who went to India on short notice because there was a pressing need at a hospital, and she had to go to work immediately. She couldn't wait to study even the first few words of the language, so she just used an interpreter And after she had been there a little while, she wrote back home about her frustration and her discouragement and asked her church for prayer. She she had been trying every day to show Christ's love and compassion to the people, but they were not responding at all. A few weeks later, she wrote another letter saying that she had discovered what the problem was. It was her translator, She was being very gracious and loving, but the translator was just a rude and arrogant man who was not a Christian, who never conveyed her compassion to the patients at all. He was a barrier to her message. Well, brothers and sisters, we are, if you like, the interpreters of Jesus Christ to the world, and we wish others truly to know him through our words, through our actions. May then we read such a passage and pray, may God make us true interpreters of Christ, a credit to his word, and useful in his mission to the world. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you've commanded us to speak for Jesus Christ. And again, Father, we know those who need him desperately. Give us an understanding as we see our Lord, that great missionary who was sent. We long to be sent in like manner. Give us boldness. Strengthen us through your might. Hear us as we come together before you in this place of prayer. Teach us again our calling in the world, in it but not of it, sanctifying us by your truth, and fill us with your Holy Spirit that we also cannot but speak of all that we've seen and heard. Lord, frankly, the opportunities that present themselves to us often seem like opportunities for persecution. Give us eyes to see them as they are, opportunities to speak of your great goodness to us, of the love of God in Christ Jesus.